uh, just looking at a little passage, a little paragraph from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your holy word. Uh, not only true, but so beautiful, so piercing. And uh, we thank you for this uh, text and these challenging words for us. Give us open hearts to receive what you would have to say to us and um, lead us into your love and help us to be shaped by that love, that your love might live in us, that our lives might be defined by your love. So be our teacher now, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're looking this morning, one of the, maybe the most famous passages in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, and many of you have heard these words, famous words from the Apostle Paul about love, and actually this paragraph in some ways is the climax of the last 10 chapters that we've been, actually for several summers we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, the last 10 chapters are kind of climaxing here. Uh, most of the last 10 chapters are kind of referred to in this paragraph. So for example, if you go all the way back to chapter 3, this verse says that love does not envy and that same word, seloi, uh, which is used for envy, is used in chapter 3, describing the Corinthian church, where Paul says, for while there is jealousy, that's that word right there, and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? So here's the, all the characteristics of the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was a church with a lot of problems, chapter after chapter of problems, the ways they're fighting with each other, and ways they're sinning against God and against each other. And... It's amazing that they're all listed here in this passage. And Paul says that the solution to all your problems in the Corinthian church is love. And you might think, well, that sounds like a Hallmark card. The solution to all your problems is love. But I'll tell you, that at the end of the day, that's what the Bible says. That is the, the center of who our God is. So our God is love. Which means the solution to all our problems is love too. Love is complicated. Love may not be what you expect it to be, and uh, I think we'll find that as we look at this passage this morning. So I want to look at this piercing description of love that Paul gives us in just these, these four little verses and talk about them this morning under these three headings. First, what is love? Second, or sorry, what love is, what love isn't, and how love is formed in us. Three things, what love is, what love isn't, and third, how love is formed in us. And I'll tell you, you know, a challenge with a passage like this is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written, and how do you add something to it with a sermon? You know, it's kind of impossible. We could just meditate on these words, but we're going to give it a shot, give it, just see what we can add to it, you know, or, or reflect on, on these words. So, three points this morning. The first is this, what love is. And Paul begins this little paragraph with two 
positive descriptions of what love looks like, what, what love is about in those two words you, you see in verse 4, patience and kindness. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about each of these. What is love positively, according to the Apostle Paul? And the first, he says, verse 4, is that love is patient. Now, one question you might have is, if, you, if someone asks you, what is love, would that have been your first word you would have said? Patience. You know, one of the reasons, the striking things about it to me is that patience is a passive word. You know, you're not really doing anything. Patience is, is, means waiting. It means not acting, right? It means not trying to fix things, not trying to do something. And I'll tell you what the word patience does for me is it slows everything down. It says that love has a certain pace to it. And I think that's an important insight for our culture. It says that um, love and fast pace have trouble coexisting with each other. Living a fast pace, get things done kind of life has trouble coexisting with love. They're kind of in tension with each other. And actually, that happened to me this week. I was preparing this sermon. Uh, I usually write my sermons on Tuesdays, finish my sermons on Tuesday. I usually have about half of it written before then. And then this Tuesday, I didn't have anything written. And then I had meetings all day, and it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I sat down. I was like, i got to write this sermon. It's got to be done today. We're going to knock out the sermon. And then I sit down. I open the passage. Love is patient. <laughs> Slow me down. And, you know, you, you know preaching is, is about love. It's, it's actually one of the primary times where a pastor gets to love his congregation, speak words of love to his, to his congregation. And knocking out sermons is going to have a certain pace to it. It's going to have a kind of anxiety built into the sermon. And it's going to feel forced. And it's going to lack subtlety and care. And so the Lord said to me, you, you need to go on a walk before you talk about what love is patient. And I went on a slow walk, and it was a beautiful day like this, and the sun was coming through the trees, and the Lord taught me about love in the, in the woods. And uh, staring at the trees, you need to slow down if you are able to know love and to give love. Love is patient. Love is slow. Love has all the time in the world. And one reason for that is that God is that way. You know, one of the biggest questions that I've always struggled with with the Bible is the Bible talks about how Jesus is going to come again and set all things right in the world. And I sometimes think, you know, he said that 2,000 years ago, and he hasn't come back yet. And I have kind of thought, maybe, maybe the Bible's wrong. Maybe he's not coming back. What's the answer to that? Love is patient. God is patient. That's exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not in a rush. God is not anxious. He's not worried. He is giving time for people and nations to come to him. And I'll tell you what's that's good news, not just for the world as a whole, that God is giving time for all kinds of different people and ethnic groups and individuals to come to him. That's true for you, too. God is patient with you. He gives time and space for you. The work he wants to do in you takes years and decades. You're getting your feet under you, learning what it is to follow Jesus. 
Or as the way the Bible says it over and over again, the Lord is slow to anger. I mean, my kind of computation in the Bible is that like the average time it takes for God to get angry is about 400 years. He says it just takes years and years and years till finally his wrath comes. And because he's, he's slow to anger, he, he, uh, he's not like us. And it's important for us as a community to be defined by God's pace. To be a community that's shaped by God's love that means that we give time and space for people to change and to grow. And people are going to come, for all of us, it's going to take time for us to, to learn to walk with Jesus And so Paul is slowing everything down, saying relationships take time, growing spiritually takes time, changing takes time. And that's the place that we need to start with love, is this pace. Love means we are not in a rush. Now, the the word there that's used for patience can also be translated long-suffering, which also says that, you know, love says in the midst of pain, in the midst of disappointment, love doesn't run away. It doesn't leave in the midst of disappointment. And it tells us that love suffers. Of course, our Lord dying on the cross is the great, greatest picture of love, dying on the cross for our sins, that he suffered for us. But, you know, I think that sometimes some of us can have a kind of obsession with suffering and it's, you know, life is hard. Love is hard. And there's a heaviness that goes through that. I think that's partly true. But I think Paul, that's why Paul pairs patience, long-suffering, with the second word, verse 4, love is kind. And actually, this is the only place in the New Testament this Greek word is used. It's usually a noun. And actually, this word wasn't used ever before the Apostle Paul used it. Some commentators say he made this word up. And he changed the word for kindness from being kind of a state of being, being a kind person, to an action, a verb, showing kindness. And this is an important quality for Christian love. You know, when Christians say that God is love or God is loving... It doesn't mean that God has warm, fuzzy feelings in the sky and he just feels good about us. The Bible tells us God's love is an action. He does something. He took on flesh. He came and walked among us. He healed people. He talked to people. He knew people. He had relationships. He died on a cross. He resurrected, you know, was raised from the dead. He fed the 5,000. Love is an action, not a feeling. And I think that kindness has a particular aspect that the action of kindness is wanting to give pleasure and joy to others. It it means I want to make other people happy. And of course, that's kind of what this whole world is. God makes this world filled with trees and sunlight and butterflies and all this. And, you know, if you read the creation story, God makes all these things and he makes all these creatures and he makes these human beings. And in the end, he smiles and he looks at it and it gives him pleasure. He says, it's very good. And then he says to all the humans, I want you to take all the food off the trees and chop it up and fry it up or, you know, and, and make all this food. And I want you to enjoy it. He's like this jovial king who's made this, this feast and he's inviting us all to share in the feast of it. And he wants us to have pleasure. And so God's love is willing to suffer for others. But ultimately, he wants to share joy and pleasure and goodness and laughter with others too. And we can't lose sight of that. We need the pairing of both. 
And actually, there's a, a friend I had in St. Louis when I was going to seminary. There's a guy I met in a coffee shop. He, he was a Buddhist, but you know, he's thinking a lot about spiritual things, and we'd always have conversations. And he's a really thoughtful, neat guy. And uh, he came over for our, din- our house for dinner one night, and uh, if you know my wife, she's a really good cook, and she made this beautiful meal. It was like a steak and a glass of wine. And he said, you know, okay, the one thing that's different about my Christian friends, he had a bunch of Christian friends and a bunch of Buddhist friends. He says, when I go to my Buddhist friend's house, it's always like rice and beans. You know, it's like suffer. You know, it's like no desire. And then I go to the Christian's house, and it's like steak and wine, and it's some food. I love good food. And it was like, that comes from who our God is. There is a kindness and abundance that's overflowing. His cup overflows, and he wants to share that with us. And that's why I think having a grateful heart, receiving God's gifts with gratitude and thanksgiving, enables us to love other people. How, how do you give pleasure to others unless you've received it yourself and been able to receive it and enjoyed it and thank God for it? Now, these two things of what love is, long-suffering and kindness, the thing that comes to mind, the story that comes to mind in the Bible when I think about those two words, the end of the Gospel of John, you know, you have Jesus, he's abandoned by all his friends, and he dies on the cross, and he's suffering. And then you turn the next page in his resurrection, and there's this scene where he's on the beach, and he's cooking fish for his friends and you know it's the morning and you say oh I want to be there and and then they go for this walk along the beach and they're talking about their future and and Jesus you know says to Peter I'll tell you about your future I'm not going to tell you about his future you know and it's just this great conversation and there it is it's it's there's there's suffering and joy suffering leading into joy desiring joy and and that is the kindness of our God so that's what love is but something that's interesting about this passage it starts with two positive statements, patience and kindness, and then immediately goes into eight things of what love is not, right? Eight descriptions. This is what love doesn't look like, which means that you know, when we give our attention to love or having love formed in our lives, it's, it's probably going to require more attention giving to resisting a kind of anti-love spirit that all of us have living inside of us. It's something that has to be challenged and fought against. And so Paul spends more time not on what love is, but more importantly, this is our second point, what love isn't. And the eight negative statements about what love isn't, this is what they are. In the second half of verse 4, it says, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I'm going to try to condense those eight statements into five statements that I want to kind of challenge us with about what love isn't. And so the first of those five is that love does not envy Envy is absolutely deadly to a life of love. And envy is is slightly different than if you know the Ten Commandments. The last of the Ten Commandments is covetousness. And covetousness is when you want something that someone else has. You see, oh, they have that nice house, or they have that job, or they have that spouse, or they have that family, or that life, or they have those skills or gifts. And I wish I had those things. Envy takes it one step further and says, it's not only that I wish I had those things, but I hate that you have them. 
I hate you for having them. You see, covetousness is still focused on the object. It, it wants something. It's still desiring something. And, the, and the, you might even say there's something good in that, of enjoying good things. Envy is focused on the person. It's not focused on the object anymore. And you might think, why would anyone hate someone because they have something they want? Well, it always comes from some sense of entitlement. That uh, it's not only that I wish I had that thing, it's that I think I should have that thing. That thing is owed to me. And I have been wronged because I don't have that job. God has wronged me, or people have wronged me because I don't have that job, or I don't have that family, or I don't have those skills, or uh, whatever it is, I don't have that money. What makes envy so deceptive is that it has a moral outrage underlying it. And if you have that entitlement, that moral outrage, um, it will block you from loving people. So the question is, where does that sense of entitlement, these things are owed to me, I, I should have those, where does that come from? Well, that's the second thing that Paul warns us about, is that love, what love isn't, love does not boast and is not arrogant. And the word there for arrogant you, is the word for puffed up. Boasting and arrogance means having you know, an inflated view of ourselves. And the reason we feel entitled to certain things is because we think we're special. I should be rich. I should be successful. I should be well-liked. The Bible tells us over and over again, those views of ourselves, viewing ourselves higher, more highly than we ought, must be put to death. The gospel, the center of our life, it leaves no room for boasting. I mean, how did we all come to Jesus? We came to Jesus empty-handed, in the dark, blind, spiritually dead, opposed to God, opposed to other people, lost. And he embraced us and welcomed us. And to think that we can make claims on God on what he owes us or what other people owe us is to forget how impoverished our souls are before God without Christ. And so amazingly, Jesus comes and he embraces us and he brings us in. And that means that the only thing we can boast in is not anything about ourselves. The only thing we can boast in is Christ who has loved us and welcomed us. It's the only thing we can boast in. Okay? So um, love does not envy. Love is not arrogant. It does not boast. Third, love is not rude. And, you know, I think rudeness is a particular issue in our culture. Uh, we often say things like, I'm just being honest. I'm, you know, I'm just speaking my mind. You know, I'm just going to tell you what I'm thinking. What's wrong with that, right? Because we live in an age of authenticity. You know, being honest with what's in my heart. And, uh, you know, what if what's in your heart is conceit and self-serving, <laughs> And I'm just going to open up my heart, and now I can feel justified in just letting out whatever's in my heart. I can only put it this way. I think that love is well-mannered. How do, you, how do you think of that word, manners? You know, I think we often think of it as kind of traditional. It's kind of this superficial politeness that we put on and we say nice things and even though really inside we're like filled with grudges and that politeness is, is fake but I guarantee you, meet a child who's rude and meet a child who's well-mannered, which one do you feel loved by? 
we feel loved by a well-mannered child. And that is because manners are simply the skills, the disciplines of love. Thank you. Excuse me. And, you know, let me get that for you. Our gratitude, gentleness, and service and body. That's not just for children. That is for all of us. And we think that genuine love is always going to be spontaneous. But I tell you, genuine love is almost never spontaneous. It is a learned habit. And rudeness is a manner that is uh, untrained in the skills of gentleness and love. Now, some of, you may, some of you may hear these first few things of what love isn't, of, you know, love is envious, hates people for the things they have, or, or is arrogant and thinks highly of themselves, and, uh, you know, that love is rude. And you might say, you know, I'm a pretty polite person. I definitely don't hate people for the things that they have. I don't think I'm that arrogant. I think this fourth thing... <laughs> None of us get away from. Fourth, love does not insist on its own way. I bet for all of us, if we thought through the most recent conflict we had with, you know, a spouse or a coworker or someone at church, a major part of it was our insistence that we get our own way. We have in our minds what the right things that needs to be done and someone disagrees with us but this is another remarkable thing about God. <laughs> I mean, God is the creator, sovereign king of the whole creation, and he has a certain way that he wants things done. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's got 7.5 billion people not doing that. And guess what? He still feeds us. He still gives us air. He still gives us happy days here and there. He gives us all kinds of good things. And he doesn't end the whole project. He keeps it running. In some ways, he gives us freedom. And he doesn't insist on his own way. He says, you know, I'm going to gently bring them along. I'm going to send out some people to teach them about Jesus and, you know, love them. And I'm going to bring them into my fold. And, but God himself doesn't even insist. If, if the creator, the king, the sovereign king doesn't have to insist on getting his own way, Neither do we. Fifth thing, related, love does not keep a track of wrongs. And, you know, in verse 5 when it says love is not irritable or resentful, that word resentful is literally love does not count up evil. It does not keep track of the evil and the wrongs that people uh, do against us. And again, this aspect of love is, very at the heart, is right at the heart of God's love for us. What does the gospel say? Though our skin, sins were as scarlet, now he has made them white as snow. He has washed away our sins. He does not keep the record of them and hold them against us. And so when we hear all these things, you, you hear this list. On the one hand, you say, oh, man, first of all, I, you know, the, the envious, arrogant, rude, insisting on their own way, keeping track of the wrongs that people have done, you say, oh, I do not like that person, and yet... I think that's me, a lot of that. And yet, we also see that the depiction of love in these verses is our God. It's God who does it, these loves perfectly. And it's that love that has brought us all together into a family and bound us together. And so I think this leads to a final point. How does the God who does love like this share that love form that love in us who have this anti-love spirit that lives in, in our flesh and is resistant to love? How does he share it with us? And that's our third point. How, 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 do, how is love formed in us? And the answer is in verse 7. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And, you know, I read that verse, you know, about believing all things, hoping all things, bearing, and there is such a creative energy in that verse, right? Love dreams. Love overcomes obstacles. Love encourages others. You can do it. Love believes the best about people. Love sees a future. And this is why, historically, Christianity has had such a creative cultural power to it. You know, that's why Christians make up things like hospitals. Christians say, we need everyone in a society to be able to read so they can read the Bible. Christianity makes up, you know, social programs uh, for the poor, uh, start schools, abolish slavery, make laws that are just and, you know, bring freedom to people groups. What is behind all this cultural creativity? The God of love. Love motivates civilization building. Because this verse 7, you know, about believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, tells us that love is looking to the future. And you notice, what, are, what is all things? What is all things the Bible? It's heaven and earth. It's the whole created order. It's everything, it's things visible and things invisible. What's pictured in here, what's loaded into this text is that love sees a new world coming where Jesus will make all things right and where we will dwell in his, the presence of his love forever. And so when we ask the question, how is love formed enough, the deepest answer is that we have to have this picture, this picture of a future, this hope living in us, this picture of Jesus remaking the world in love that is our guide for us as individuals. And we say, you know, Jesus is remaking me in love. For us as a community, Jesus is making us a community of love, this patience that gives us time, that waits for people to come along and gently brings people in. And, and it's a vision for our community that Jesus is remaking Bellingham in love. And when we have experienced that Jesus really loves us, and we have embraced that love, we've received that love, that is one, his love, is formed in us too. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these beautiful, challenging words. You know the anti-love spirit that is in each one of us. Would you drown it, flood it out as you pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit? And Lord, that we could believe, we could hope. And out of that hope, we would endure. Um, looking forward to the, way, the day when you will set all things right. And Lord, give us this creative energy to be participants in your renewal of all things. Shower your love on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.